0: Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing today? I'm fucking exhausted, but I'm really pleased to be here. I'm swearing right off the bat. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) That's me, kid. That's the kind of energy I want from you today. (laughs) I'm I'm really excited for the show today. Yeah, me too. It's going to be great. So our theme this month is the State of the Nation novel. Those books that capture the zeitgeist from Les Miserables to American Pastoral to Ali Smith's Seasonal Quartet can literature speak to our times in ways other media can't?
1: I'm sorry, you sounded 100% like Carrie Bradshaw then. Was I couldn't I? help but wonder. <laughs> I know, I know, it's a little cheesy, Could but just I'm just going to go on with it. Could you do it with I couldn't help but wonder? I
0: couldn't help but wonder. Can literature speak to our times in ways other media can't? Made my day. Yeah. And my name is Carrie, after all. Uh, Really? I always identified with Miranda. I know that's cool to say now, but I was identifying with Miranda when it wasn't cool.
1: Before she was like a political powerhouse. Yes, exactly. Carry on.
0: But anyway, we have a really exciting guest today that is not anyone from Sex and the City. Instead, it's friend of the program, Olivia Lang, who I think has made a good argument that literature can speak to our times in really vital and important ways with her first novel, Crudo. Enfolding in real time during the summer of 2017 in the wake of the Brexit vote and Trump's election, Crudo features a character that very closely resembles Kathy Acker coming to terms with marriage. Octavia, do you want to introduce her a little bit more?
1: I'd love to. And also, I'd just love to say that, you know, Kathy Acker is a massive favorite of mine, so I'm... I'm like extra thrilled. Um, Olivia Lang is a widely acclaimed writer and critic who lives in Cambridgeshire. She writes for The Guardian, New York Times and Freeze, among many other publications. She's the author of three previous books of nonfiction, all of which have been shortlisted for prizes and all of which have been critically acclaimed. To the River, The Trip to Echo Spring, which was the book she discussed with you on the show Mm. many years ago, and The Lonely City. Crudo is her first novel and it is a blinder.
0: It totally is. We're so excited to talk to her. So today you'll be hearing our interview with Olivia Lang about Crudo. Then we'll talk more generally about our theme, which is the State of the Nation novel. And then, as usual, we'll be giving you some book recommendations at the end. So if you want to stay relevant, stay with us on Literary Friction. (laughs) I went back into Carrie Bradshaw there. Nailed it. (laughs) Olivia Lang, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction again. We're classifying you as a fop. Friend of the program. I hope you don't <laughs> mind that. Um, I love to be a fop. Good, good. Um, so, we have asked you to start with a reading from your book, Crudo.
2: Sure thing. That was the morning that white people finally realized the president of the United States was a white supremacist. He'd as good as said so. There was a cartoon in The Guardian of the White House with a clan hood over the roof. Why were people surprised? Weren't they listening to anything? Kathy read some threads from people on the far left. Hysterical over weapon caches in Charlottesville. Here's something you need to know. Caches of weapons were found throughout Rwanda after the genocide. This isn't about the CSA statue, but a test run for a militia takeover of a small city. I am sorry to bring you this tonight. There's a bigger plan at work here. Please don't doubt that. Take nothing for granted. People weren't sane anymore, which didn't mean they were wrong. Some sort of cord between action and consequence had been severed. Things still happened, but not in any sensible order. It was hard to talk about truth because some bits were hidden, the result or maybe the cause. And anyway, the space between them was full of misleading data, nonsense and lies. It was very dizzying. You wasted a lot of time figuring it out. Her decisions really once led plainly to things happening in a way you could report on. She remembered it, but distantly. A lot had changed this year. The people who opposed it were often annoying, but that didn't make them wrong. Think how many annoyingly right people the Nazis had killed, people who said inconvenient or paranoid things that turned out to be true. They were dead. So were the cynical, ironic people, and the people who refused to engage, the people who fought street battles and the people who closed their doors and came inside and preserved culture instead. Cathy wasn't sure what she'd do if it came down to it. Back in the day, she'd done her time in the black block. she jostled to the front, shoulder to shoulder with the bandana boys, the brick throwers. But then she decided she hated them, that the whole thing was dogmatic and foolish. A game on both sides. Hard to tell now. Depends where you're standing. Like inside a synagogue, like in a headscarf at the airport. What the fuck had happened? She can see two books out of the corner of her eye. Mother Country. And cruel optimism. Maybe she should read them. Thank you very much. And you couldn't have picked a better thing to
0: read for our theme today, which is all about State of the Nation. And we want to ask you a little bit more about how this book engages with the contemporary moment. Um, But first, I just wanted to ask you about the germination of the book, because a character resembling Kathy Acker living through the summer of 2017 and, and sort of like dealing with marriage is not the most obvious plot <laughs> synopsis that has ever existed. So can you talk a little bit about how you came to that?
2: Yeah, Kathy Acker is dead. I just want to be yes, very clear yeah, about yeah. That. People keep saying, but she is dead, isn't she? <laughs> um. Yeah, so I was working on a completely different book. I was working on a nonfiction book about bodies and violence and race and sexuality, all of these sort of large themes for years, really. And I was finding it incredibly hard. And I realised what I was looking for, what I need in order to write nonfiction is some sort of stable platform to report from, to sort of take a view. And the news was changing so fast. The dynamics were changing so fast. There was Brexit, there was Trump. I just couldn't keep up. I couldn't find that sort of space to regard it from. So I was very, very frustrated. That's the backstory. And then I was in Italy and I was reading Chris Krause's biography of Kathy Acker. And there was something in it that really sort of took my imagination, which was Kathy used to, when she was a very young writer, she had a teacher called David Anton. And he suggested that she go into libraries, take a book, take a biography of Toulouse-Lautrec or whoever, and plagiarise it put it into the first person to see what happens and there was something about that that just excited me so I thought well what happens if I just plagiarise my life if I plagiarise the world I'm in the summer of 2017 with everything that's happening personally and politically but I put it into the Kathy Acker person that I give it this sort of different perspective what would she see of this world and the minute I started writing I realised I'd found something that let me move back and forth between all of these different states she's she's the perfect person because she so much talks about the fracturing of identity which is the hallmark of our age
1: when I read the Chris Krauss biography I was thinking I wish Kathy Acker were around today to use Twitter and then you gave her to me <laughs> on Twitter in crudo and it made me so happy um no I really love the book and I and I I feel like Kathy Acker would approve of your use of her um as this kind of yeah, this sort of Cypher character, but you y- you know, taking this person who was a real person, but also whose entire oeuvre is about mm-hmm. herself as Cypher and mm-hmm. herself as the performed self. And you know, you have lots of references to Warhol and Crudo and things like that. I wonder, and, and what you just said about plagiarizing your own life, has it given you a sense of you as writer pushing your own personality out into a different space from your nonfiction work?
2: Absolutely. And I think that's part of what I was saying before, that my my nonfiction persona, the I I use there, is this very sort of serious, scholarly, melancholy figure. And e- using that to talk about this moment would dignify it in a way it doesn't deserve. This moment is sort of, again, hallmarked by its violence, its chaos, its cartoonish nature. So it needed a different kind of voice. It needed a voice that was cynical and playful and very, very agile, very fluid in a way that I couldn't manage with with the tone that I I had used before. So I needed something new. Did you have fun with it? It was the most blissfully fun writing experience I've ever had. And I hate writing. Every sentence is agony. But I wrote this over seven weeks. I had two rules, one of which was I had to write every day. And the other was that I wasn't allowed to edit at all. I wasn't even allowed to read back what I'd written. So it just poured forth and you know I'm such an obsessive editor so it was a revolution really to be able to write like that. And was it written, it, it, the novel unfolds sort of in
0: real time. Completely was it time. written in real time as well? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah
2: it completely written in real time and I finish it in, the book ends in Heathrow Airport, I finished it in Heathrow Airport and then I emailed it to my agent and got on a plane and that was the end of it but I wasn't intending on publishing it I should say that as well I was initially writing it as like either I'd put it on the internet or I'd like bind up a 100 and give them to my friends as a mentor of this fucking crazy summer and then as I got towards the end of it I thought actually this is something rather different than what I thought I was doing and perhaps I will and then when I decided to it, I was really clear that it absolutely had to be edited as minimally as possible the rawness is important and it had to come out within a year, which amazingly Picador has been able to do.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because uh, they did rush it out, um, which is, as as anyone who works in the publishing industry knows, is difficult. Was that ever a question or were they just on board with that? They
2: were amazingly on board. But I think the thing was, because Ali, Ali Smith had done autumn and winter it suddenly had become clear to all writers that what publishers tell you about lead times isn't actually strictly true so that sort of I don't think I would have even thought of doing it if I thought that it had to be a two-year lead time it wouldn't have been worth it as an experiment but because I knew that actually it was possible to speed stuff up and I have to say Picador have been amazingly sort of on board with the project They, they really got it.
1: I wanted to ask you about the cover image because it's a Wolfgang Tillmans print and I love Wolfgang Tillmans. And he is, you know, a very politically engaged artist also. And your work engages with art through your back catalogue of, of writing. And also mm. in, in this text, there's a lot of reference to visual art. Did you choose the cover print? Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah, good. absolutely. And I, um, Maureen Paley, his gallerist, really liked The Lonely City. So I wrote to her and said, what do you think would Wolfgang like it? And she said, well, explain it to him. And so I, I sort of gave him the pitch of this is very political and it's you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, it sounds right on my strasser. Yeah. <laughs> <I bet laughs> yeah, it's did. just my favorite thing ever. <laughs> well, because his presence on, on social media He's so is so brilliant. He is. And yeah. very anti-Brexit, of course. Yeah. And anti-Trump. God. So, yeah, it felt like it really was a book that sort of tallied with him. But then the whole thing of the sort of smash crab and that it's such a beautiful, beautiful cover. I'm thrilled.
0: Yeah, and definitely engages with the abject, which I think is a a big part of this book as well. Beautiful
2: Um, and repulsive is the vibe. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to talk a little bit
0: more about Kathy Acker, especially for our listeners who might not know her work. Um, Do you mind just telling us a little bit about her and, and yeah. especially what intrigued you as a writer about her as a writer.
2: Yeah, definitely. Although I should say first, if you don't know who Kathy Acker is, you don't need to know. You don't it doesn't need to be an element of the novel that comes out. There's so much else going on. You can just follow Kathy as a person. Um but she's an, she's an incredibly exciting, electrifying writer. And I think part of the problem with Kathy Acker is she had such a visual presence. You know, she was wearing her Comme de Garçons and her Vivienne Westwood, and she had her shaved hair and her piercings. And in some ways, because she died so young, I think that's the image that's been left with people. They feel like they know who she is, and so they don't necessarily come to her books. And her books are so... Um, electrifying beautiful strange idiosyncratic um, she's a plagiarizer she's a thief she takes Dickens she takes Don Quixote and she turns them into something else but I think if you'd asked me that question five years ago I would have said I love Kathy Acker but not necessarily that relevant a writer right now but the world we're in has suddenly become Acker's world it's her books are about terrorism they're about the rise of the far right they're about abortion over and over again all of these issues that are in the news right now are very much present in her work
0: I really got that sense as I I will admit I haven't read Kathy Acker, but what came through to me was that she was a relevant writer for our age.
2: And that was why throughout the book, whenever Kathy, my character, writes, they write Kathy Acker's lines. And it's not in quotation marks in the book, but it's all at the end. And part of that was to just say, this writer is speaking to us right now. It felt really important to me that she doesn't get left in the 80s, that she's sort of brought back into the 21st century, which she never saw, but really predicted in so many ways and I
0: I did want to ask you because obviously Acker is a writer who totally lends herself to this kind of plagiarism this was this Mm. was part of her work um But did you ever feel uncomfortable with the way that you've blended your own experience with hers? Was it was it was there ever any tension points? No, not at all.
2: And there would have been if I'd done it with anybody else. And, you know, I've written about artists in lots of different ways. And there are often points where I'm uneasy or I'm sort of considering the ethical issues of what I'm doing. If I'm writing about somebody's suicide, say, with Virginia Woolf or. David Warnerovich's death. Those are things that where I've been very careful. But with Acker, she's a permissive writer. She's a writer who took whatever she needed, and it feels like that's her legacy for other writers. But also, doing that sort of blending was so interesting because there were things that there were points where our biographies dovetailed. There were points where I was able to, by writing something biographical about her, say something that's incredibly honest about myself, and you wouldn't necessarily know which was which. There are bits where it feels very confessional, but actually it's got nothing to do with me. And there are other bits where it seems absolutely part of Cathy Acker's Wikipedia entry, and yet it's totally my life. So that, that felt like a game that was worth playing.
1: And and it's interesting because that's where the Chris Crass biography of Acker ends up, where she says, you know, we could all have been Acker mm. because there's so much about, even though she was this very extreme figure in lots of ways, she was also a woman, a woman artist struggling with concepts of gender and Mm. how to live um and i mean i I wonder if you could talk a bit more about the character in crudo's relationship to the institution of marriage because obviously that's something that Mm. runs through that seems to be speaking to broader ideas about social organization and then also the the organization of the personal at home you know um yeah
2: well that's that's a huge question um i was writing it um i started writing it just before i got married and it was really that sort of antechamber before and just after, where I was somebody who'd been alone for a very, very long time. I'd written a book about loneliness, and suddenly I was in this different space, and it seemed to me that it was worth recording, that it was much stranger than I'd been led to expect. I had that idea of like, not exactly happily ever after, but that's the end of the narrative. That's so often the end of the story. It, but it wasn't at all. It was this very strange space that in some ways was far harder than I was expecting it to be. Um, and it felt interesting to record as well the sort of the borderline between selfishness and intimacy, how how that movement happens. Because selfishness is so much a theme of our age. And we think of it in terms of the personal, but it's also part of the political.
0: The personal and the political are so much at odds and so mixed together in this book I mean I think it's partially because of the the way you write it which it engages so fully with the contemporary moment um and not just a feeling but actual things that are happening so Mm. you have this you have this wonderful scene um during the wedding where and and there's just a line that I picked out back inside they were eating more cake when someone shouted Steve Bannon's resigned and that seems to me it's like so (laughs) expressive of of the way we live but also this novel the political moment that we live in is constantly intruding upon our lives even if in our happiest moments or even in our saddest moments it's like we cannot detach ourselves from it and I, I assume that was something you wanted to capture when you were writing absolutely.
2: This absolutely that's the sort of prime thing really about the book is they're not separable and it's funny I, I read a review yesterday where somebody said well you know there's all this news could she not have just written a letter to a newspaper editor about the news but the the two elements aren't separable they're not that this is what our lives look like this is how we experience life we wake up in the morning we go on twitter to maybe see what our friends are doing they had for breakfast And we find out that a Supreme Court justice has just resigned and that abortion rights in America are going to get rolled back. And living inside that sort of news world is a new reality that I felt like the novel hasn't yet fully got to grips with. I mean, certainly it's something Ali Smith is doing, not other people are doing, but we're learning how to do it because we're learning how to live in that world. Then they're just... The idea that you can have a domestic novel that doesn't engage with the political or a political novel that doesn't engage with the human is absurd to me. That isn't reality.
1: I completely agree. It's a really arbitrary distinction. I guess Mm -hmm. people do it to protect themselves from the cruel reality in some ways, you know, to annex different parts of life can make us feel like we have control over things that we simply don't.
2: And the juxtapositions are so horrific and painful and sort of going from these like romantic moments or very luxurious moments to the horror of other people's lives. I can see that those movements in the book unsettle people and make them feel uncomfortable. But that is the reality. And I could certainly have written a book about the refugee crisis and made it feel very sort of stately and sorrowful. But The reality is actually at some point you're going to go out and drink with your friends and that's still part of the story. To me that is the whole thing and capturing that whole thing is worth doing.
1: I wanted to ask you about the role of food in the book because <laughs>
2: <laughs> the I feel a bit embarrassed about that. Somebody <laughs> oh no, you said must the role have. of drinking in the book as well and I was like, "Oh god, we do drink a lot."
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's because there's you 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 relish in the descriptions of food and there's moments, they're moments of very sensorial pleasure mm. and they're juxtaposed with, you know, the appearance of the Grenfell Tower or, you yeah. know, yeah. these as you say, very kind of brutal the brutal yeah. reality of daily life, and yes, that that contrast between the fact that we might be really enjoying ourselves and then seeing these images is is potent. Um, but I, yeah, I just I I got a real sense that you have a love of food, and it was kind of a <laughs> wonderful thing. But w- were you, were you, was that was that a considered addition, or was it just a very natural way of exploring how you enjoy life?
2: I think. The idea of moving between pleasure and pain, that's very Acker. That's something that Acker does all the time, the, the sort of erotic or sexual or sensual, moving back to the absolutely horrifying and abject, that that movement. And that's there in the cover picture as well. Um, so I think I, I wanted to get those sort of extremes. So if I was doing something that felt particularly sort of sensual, then it certainly went into the book. And maybe I'm just a very greedy person, I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't say greedy. And a total lush. <laughs>
0: Well, I think you did ask, for me, a real question about how much pleasure we can allow ourselves mm-hmm. in a time when the world seems to be falling apart. Um, and you can't help but read this and think that maybe it is a little ridiculous that Kathy in this book is is on holiday in Italy and drinking mm-hmm. and eating and enjoying mm-hmm. herself and, and and falling in love or, or already being mm-hmm. in love and falling further in love. Mm-hmm. And yet... Um, I think so many of the conversations I have now today are about how to absorb all of the news without falling into a pit of despair. What what do we do about that? And is pleasure maybe the answer? I don't I don't know.
2: I don't think pleasure is the only answer, but I think um I think there's some, you know, I wrote this book out of a state of absolute anxiety and despair. I really did think we would end up in nuclear war by the end of the year, and now I don't think that, but I think worse things are happening really. The, the concentration camps on the border being a very clear example um and i don't i don't know the answer to these questions i really wanted to just document what that moment felt like where perhaps we could start to think about how we wanted to re ourselves to this new reality which is that the far right are in control and what we want to do about that and i don't think um Banning ourselves from pleasure or happiness is the answer. I think that is part of being in the world. That is necessary. But I also think we have a responsibility towards other people. And I feel like the argument in all my books, and particularly this one in The Lonely City, is they're really about not being terrified of difference, not allowing yourself to hate the different, and working against your own tendencies to selfishness. And this is about somebody who's profoundly selfish trying to learn how not to be it's that that is the sort of cracking that Kathy's undergoing and that happens on a very personal privileged individual level but at the same time every single person involved in the political story is also an individual living their private life and we can all inch towards being less selfish that feels to me like that's a political thing as well as a private thing.
1: Well, that leads me exactly to the next question I wanted to ask, which was about the role of intimacy in the book, because mm. the relationship that Kathy has with her husband um, and the experience she has of, like you say, cracking open and allowing love yeah. in in this very uncomfortable way, I, I found I very profoundly identified with it. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like one of the things that, la- that resonated the most with me, that movement towards intimacy, but profound distaste yeah. for it and yeah. fear of it. yeah. I wonder if this, if you would agree with this, that, you know, you're saying, yes, pleasure is, we mustn't deny ourselves pleasure, but it's also not the only counterpoint to the horrors of reality. But that intimacy can also be the, the counterpoint and maybe it's something that can yeah. strengthen us in this fight
2: against all of these horrendous actors. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- there's a line right at the end of The Lonely City that's about the the pursuit of individual happiness is fine as long as it doesn't trump our obligations to other people and that feels like that's that question that the book ends with then comes into crudo well what does that mean what does it mean to be happy in terms of the other people in the world how do you do that how do you learn to be generous how do you learn to be kind um and i feel like i i have been honest in all my books and i have exposed all sorts of things um but exposing selfishness is a lot harder than exposing like i'm lonely you know these sort of things that you can make almost lovable, whereas there's nothing lovable about selfishness. It's disgusting. And yet, it felt like it was an interesting thing to try and chart, and it is so much a part of our age, a part of our moment, that we're so caught up in presenting and publicizing ourselves by way of social media. We're so engaged with the self and trying to like batter that eye down and become open to one person, many people, that feels like the act that we need to be doing.
1: Hear, hear.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, you, you've been mentioning your nonfiction books. Um, and I think there is a pretty clear... I mean, there are a number of things that you explore in all of them. One of the clear through lines through all of your books is exploring the way that art can affect our age, the way that art speaks to us in in an immediate way, not just as something beautiful, but as something meaningful. And that really came through here. Um, mm, good. And uh, I wonder, you know, obviously writing a novel is, is part of that project, but I wonder how you think art in particular can speak to our age now, what's happening in the world. Um, can can it change things? Can it help things?
2: I think it absolutely can. I think um, t- so there's a bit in this book, which really to me is the crucial bit, where um, Cathy's watching... Uh, video of Philip Guston talking or reading a transcript of Philip Guston talking the painter Philip Guston talking in the 60s or 70s and he's talking about the concentration camp Treblinka and how a great numbness fell across everybody both the people in the camp but also the perpetrators and how dangerous that numbness is and then he talked about some people who escaped and he said the process of that unnumbing is unimaginable And that's the job of art. That's what art should do, to bear witness to this, but also to unnumb ourselves. And I just feel like that, the bearing witness is one thing. Sure, we know that we need to bear witness, but the unnumbing is also so vital that we go into almost a trance, especially with the speed of the news cycle. I think we go into a trance where it's like worse and worse is coming over and we're almost lulled by it. And we need to not be. We need to wake up to it. And the other thing, which I think art really can do, is just challenge our terror of difference that we're so afraid of different people's lives what different people look like and this idea that we're constantly creating borders these policed borders art breaks those art snakes across those art picks the lock and that's what it's there for did you
0: think of yourself as writing a state of the nation novel when you were writing this
2: (laughs) That's such a like big swinging dick thing. I know it is, but maybe like say yes, then. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, yeah, yeah. There's a fantasy about my dick in this book, so yeah, I was writing a state. We love to to
0: talk about swinging dicks, yeah, yeah, on on literary friction. Yeah, I mean,
2: not state. I mean, it's not state of the nation. It's state of the globe. Yeah, I wrote a state of the globe novel. Just a really small idea. Yes, <laughs> I love it. No, and, and actually the I mean, state it. of the nation is so like mean and small, the yeah. nation, with its nation state and its fucking passports. No, it's not about that. It's about the globe. It's about global a global life.
0: Yeah, and um we our theme is state of the nation. I think one of the things we want to do today is problematize
1: that term yeah. anyway. Yeah, well um, it's problematic, right? Yeah. It's deeply problematic. Nationalism sucks. Yeah,
2: yeah, we are against it. Yeah,
1: profoundly so. But also the thing that you know, the, the the globe is also now an entity that exists in online communication, which you bring brilliantly into the book with yeah. WhatsApp and Twitter and Instagram and these things that I think a lot of writers shy away from including because everyone's terrified about how their work is going to date and all of that. But if you're writing about the fucking world today, mm. you need to be writing about yeah. exactly that. Yeah.
2: Um, and also, it's insane to worry about how the world's going to date because you read... Virginia Woolf and the technology is different and you read Dickens and the technology is different again like we don't have candles like in Shakespeare.
1: I mean that's just absurd. speak for yourself.
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Some of us might. Horse mattress. How did you know it was a mattress? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, you're absolutely right. I I agree with you completely. It's funny though; it's something that people seem to be very squeamish about a lot of the time. And it's one of the things I really loved in the book is that you're not squeamish about any of that stuff. It's a very unsqueamish text.
2: Yeah, which is great. Yeah, starting with the cover. Exactly.
0: And um, that that idea of the globe, I think this also felt to me, and this is maybe because I'm an American living in Britain, a very transatlantic novel specifically. Of course, Acker was American but lived in Britain. You are a British person who has lived a lot in America. And I think you make a real argument for why... Those cultures are so intertwined and it's impossible for British people, for instance, to ignore the news about Trump and what he how he's destroying America um, yeah. uh, and, and the world. Yes. And the world and the world. You're right. Um, and I, I, I don't know if that was conscious.
2: Yeah, it was really conscious. Um, it starts with a oh, very early on. There's a flashback to a big American scene because I was in New York when the Comey News broke. And so I just put all of that. I mean, that's almost directly transcribed from my diaries that sense of, oh, God, we're entering into a different era and something there's this beginning of some great creaking of the ship is breaking apart. Um, But the idea that we could have a narrative that was just about Britain at this moment is completely insane. When we're pulling away from Europe but still a part of it and when we're so engaged with the American news when we can't possibly not be we're we are a global world we're a global internet world we're a global financial world and people are the people of the world moving in my opinion people should be able to move completely freely across the world I don't believe in borders so the idea of writing a book that was bordered by a a national identity would feel actually grotesque to me
0: and a lot of it is said in Italy too yeah Um,
2: yeah which
0: is, I guess, a sort of ironic thing after the Brexit vote when we're meant to be moving away from Europe. But of course, if anything, we're moving closer together in other ways.
2: Yeah. And actually, it's funny, over the last year, I have I found myself in Europe a lot, but especially in Italy a lot. And each time it feels like this, the narratives are so entwined, the rise of the far right in Italy and here, those, those sort of stories have got so much to do with each other. Why would you try and separate them? It's the, the same... People are interacting, the same forces are interacting. As a final question, I'm I'm interested after this
0: novel writing experience, how how you see your writing going on from here. Do you do you want to keep writing novels?
2: Well, the initial idea with this, which I came up with in Italy, was that I was gonna write a quartet of novels over one each decade about this woman's life, Kathy's life, so that it would be 40, 50, 60, and 70, which I thought was great. And then I said it to my publisher and they were like, you're going to deliver one in 30 years time no way <laughs> but i mean it's like richard lincoln yeah i mean i think it's a great idea but um but i actually do have to write this book everybody which is the non-fiction book about the body which will try and approach similar material from a different perspective and at the moment it is incredibly problematic to try and work out how to do that how to report on that um what tone to take with any of it it just feels like Writing when the void is in front of you and you have no idea what you're heading into is a completely different exercise. And I feel like if artists aren't right now going through a complete crisis of what they're trying to do and how they're going to do it, then what on earth is the art they're making? Absolutely. <laughs> on that note, <laughs> underlined, no, and I, with I, a full stop uh, afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: no, Olivia Lang, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Um, and I feel very heartened.
1: I'm energized definitely
0: yeah, yeah even if I despair at the state of the world even if I woke up this morning thinking that maybe women won't be able to get abortions in the U.S. in a we year's all time need to fund abortion <laughs> yes, programs in yeah. the U.S. that's my
2: final statement yes yeah yeah, yeah that's what we need to do right now but mm-hmm.
0: th- thank you and um, thank you for writing something so vital
2: thank you for having me what a pleasure.
0: This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme. So last month we talked about small towns, and this month we're going big, baby. (laughs) The State of the Nation novel, which I guess could actually be about small towns, but actually be State of the Nation novels. It's kind of a similar thing. You know, I need, yeah, whatever. It's going to be very, very different. Yes. Um, And it's something I'm excited to talk about because it's a term that gets thrown around a lot. Um, But I'm, I'm excited to interrogate it with you.
1: Yeah, me too. And also it is a term that John McGregor used uh, when we interviewed him in the last show where he said his book Reservoir 13 wasn't aiming to be a State of the Nation novel and yet people had kind of responded to it as such. So it's kind of a nice thread that we're trawling through. Yes,
0: yeah, Um, I agree. So what do you think um, a good State of the Nation novel needs to, to have if it is to be classified as such? Well,
1: I... I, you know how I feel about categorization? Yes, yeah, okay. <laughs> Go on. No, I think that a good state of the nation novel needs to be engaging with um, the mechanisms of contemporary life. And I think that one of, the, one of the quirks of that in contemporary, in our world as it is right now, is technology, basically. It's Instagram, WhatsApp, it's Twitter. It's these things that can be very jarring when you read about them if they're not done with a great amount of skill, email, whatever. I mean, I always think of Sally Rooney when we were, Mm, putting this mm. together because Conversations with Friends manages to incorporate a lot of those things without it feeling clunky or hackneyed. But I think that the State of the Nation novel is looking at the ways in which society organizes itself, contemporary society organizes itself. And for me at the moment, you know, the way that intimacy is experienced is not face to face so much anymore. So I think that's one of the things that I would be looking for. Yeah. Does that make sense? It, no,
0: it does make sense. And um, I think that's something that Olivia Lange is very consciously playing around with yeah. in, in Crudo. Um, and I also think that brings up a, a interesting, more general point, which is by its nature, the state of the nation novel is probably going to look different in different times in order to be able to to consciously reflect its temporary moment. Yeah. So I think when sometimes when we talk about the state of the nation novel, we sometimes think of those Dickensian sort of Victorian novels that look at have a really big sprawling look at contemporary society things like Middlemarch even the way we live now by Trollope um, which I have never read and me neither sort and of I don't want to read no man no way <laughs> um, but but is that sort of considered the archetype or maybe not the archetype but but the highest form of of the state of the nation novel in that it's It's looking at all classes of people and all classes of society and trying to make a very big statement about life. But I think you could argue that that maybe isn't the best way to depict the way we live now. now.
1: Exactly. I think that the form should also mirror the time. And we're not living in a time where these grand Victorian novels of 300 pages feel that possible, actually, for many people. And so, like, referring back to Crudo, but the fact that it's a novella makes a lot of sense to me. And I think, I mean, I'm not a big fan of Martin Amos, but he's a great writer of the state of the nation. I don't like the (laughs) nations that he presents. I don't like his outlook. Um, And I remember that book Lionel Asbo was a bit of a fucking disaster. But it was also, you know, a short, pithy kind of arch look at what was going on right in that moment. Mm -hmm. I think that it's important to look at the State of the Nation novel in contrast to the historical novel. And when I was reading stuff to prep for this show, um, there was a lot of wanging on about the fact that the Booker Prize never really acknowledges State of the Nation novels because they all the list tends to be, you know, largely historical or narrative fiction in a different way, yada yada yada. And I was thinking about that. And I think it's because the State of the Nation novel is not necessarily doing the same thing as a realist novel. It's not necessarily um, literary in that exact sense. So these prizes that are are there to commemorate literary prowess, and this isn't to say that a State of the Nation novel would necessarily lack it either, but I just think there's an immediacy to it in today's world that is maybe different from like Trollope, but as we said, we haven't read it. Um, Yes. And I th- again, I think that
0: is a nice segue to a much larger point, which is that maybe the State of the Nation novel, one of the reasons it doesn't get recognized as much in sort of prize lists and things like that is because it's hard to evaluate something that speaks so immediately to our time before we've had a chance to process the moment.
1: Yeah, I think that's really right.
0: And, you know, Ezra Pound famously described literature as news that stays news. So I think you know, a state of the nation novel, a, a very good one, will be able to resonate in its own time as well as much later. Something like Middlemarch or even American Pastoral, which is regarded as many as the sort of state of the nation novel about America at its time. Mm. You know, you can still read that and get something out of it, although maybe a historical view rather than a, a sort of present interpretation.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things I also think is super fucking exciting is that the state of the nation novel was the domain of a particular kind of male writer swinging himself all over the shop and these days really fabulous state of the nation novels are being written by women women of color people with different perspectives um which I think is really really exciting you know like Zadie Smith, Monica Ali, Chimamanda and Gauti Adichie like these are all voices who are capturing contemporary moments in brilliant ways and Sally Rooney you know it's I think it's fabulous.
0: Yeah I do too and I think we're starting to break down that divide between men being encouraged to write ambitious novels that maybe even overreach themselves, whereas women, you know, their domain was thought of as the home or the family saga or personal relationships. And I don't think that was ever really true, but... um, but the writers you just mentioned do more and more to break that down. I mean, what I love about White Teeth, and and we've talked about it a lot on the show before, is, is its ambition. And I think it's not always successful. But I remember reading that novel and just being sort of dazzled by what Zadie Smith was trying to capture in that story.
1: Yeah, and also the fact that she's able to do it without the kind of cold detachment that can come in with this kind of work. Like, Michel Welbeck, the French writer, is considered, you know, a a, a master of the state of the nation. But in in the most sort of aggressive, um, I find his work very unappealing, frankly. It's very clever, but it's very aggressive. And the coldness with which he goes at contemporary problems and worries at them um, is something that I personally find quite alienating. Whereas I think that writers like Smith, and I don't want to make this distinction along gendered lines, because it only actually serves to reinforce what you just were talking about. But... I'm much more drawn to writers that are able to look at the contemporary world with also some heart and Mm -hmm. feeling um, and to connect to characters beyond them just being ciphers for some kind of um, arch political comments. But I think that also, I mean, the State of the Nation novel cannot but be political, but... I think it's fair to argue that every single novel is a political act in its own in its own way, because whatever it is that a writer is choosing to spend their time illuminating and whatever it is a reader is choosing to integrate into their own kind of personal literary narrative, that's a political act in and of itself. So that distinction is one that I find a little bit arbitrary.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, there are plenty of Marxist theorists who have devoted their life's work to to saying that Frederick Jameson is one that Love of You know, love you know, I, I engage with in, in college, but uh also, <laughs> you know, coming back to your distinction between the historical and the contemporary, a lot of historical novelists have argued that historical novels are actually about now. So is every
1: novel a state of the nation novel? Oh my God, you just blew <laughs> my mind. I uh, yeah. It's entirely possible. Who knows? Well, also, what is the nation? Like, can the nation, the nation can be writ large or it can be writ small, you know? And it's very telling that we use
0: the word nation to talk about this as though we need to make distinctions between different cultures. And that's what writers from that culture are trying to capture.
1: Yes. And actually, the thing is, I found that I'm much more drawn to State of the Nation novels about other nations, you know, like one of my favorite books is A Fine Balance by Rohinton Mystery, which I've talked about on the show before. It's a State of the Nation novel yes. about India. It's an extraordinary book. And um, I found it co- completely captivating because it's about a. Cult- it was my way into a culture that I was fairly ignorant about before then. I find often State of the Nation novels about Britain the hardest to engage with because it's all very proximate. Um, whereas I read, I went through a phase of reading a lot of those American writers when I was much younger and reading Franzen and reading Roth and reading, you know, Steinbeck and Updike. And and for me, that's a fetish. It's this fetish of American, uh, life that, you know, is somehow exotic to me. So the banalities of it don't trouble me. But what I love about... (laughs) You hate banalities. (laughs) Well, that's the thing that I love about Crudo is that... It is a state of the nation novel where banality is not that present, actually. Um, I I found it exhilarating for that reason. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, And uh, you bring up the American
0: state of the nation novel, which uh, when I was doing research for the show, and I'm sure this came up when you were doing research for show as well. There's been a lot of argument by British writers about why British writers aren't able to write a state of the nation novel in the same way as American writers have been able to do or at least have been perceived to have done. Mm. Um, And then there were a lot of people taking apart that argument. So we, we don't have to go into it that much. But what do you think about that? I mean, I certainly grew up in a culture in America where people talked about and focused on this idea of a state of the nation novel. And it's it's. I think still considered a kind of aspirational form for American writers, whereas it doesn't feel as much the case here.
1: Yeah, let me think about that for a second. It's a complicated question to answer, I think, because my impression is the same. Um, And I wonder if it's to do with a nation that's trying to self-define in a more intense, live way, being America, than England uh, or Britain, British literature, um but i i wonder if it's also i feel like there's some kind of snobbery in there but i don't quite know how it's manifesting but there's some sort of i think that the british culture can have such a profoundly over a profound overinvestment in its historical past looking back to the days of empire and all that vile history that that this nation kind of prides itself on i think very wrong wrong footedly um and there can be a distaste for the new, whereas America is facing in a very different way. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons I was drawn to American literature so much, because I've never been comfortable with that side of sort of British culture.
0: Yeah, and I do think it's a generalization, but I do think it's true that America is committed to an ongoing project of self-definition in the way that Britain isn't. Yeah, Um, Maybe just because of the the sweep of history that of encapsulates Britain as opposed to America.
1: But I think also, uh, and this is why I would abolish the monarchy, because I think it's hard for a nation to self-define when it's not a republic.
0: Yes, I I agree. Yeah. As does my intensely republican husband. <laughs> He'll be very happy to hear this. Yeah, he <laughs> um,
1: okay, so should we talk about our favorite State of the Nation novels? Let's do it. Um, so... Mine is a a, a slight sidestep, I suppose, but I think it's I think it's valid. Um, So in the New Statesman, Jonathan Coe quotes a writer called Alex Preston saying the state of the nation novel is necessarily traditional avant garde difficulty would jar with its democratic aim of giving voice to a broad mix of characters. Fair point. But Alex Preston, I disagree. Um, Ooh. <laughs> I'm going to recommend. That's my yeah jam and tired friction. <laughs> that like slow friction. Um, I'm recommending George Orwell's Animal Farm, which uh, needs no introduction, obviously. Um, and I guess you could argue it's not exactly avant-garde writing because it's... Uh, it's engaging with the fable which is I suppose traditional but I don't think it's the kind of traditional that this Alex Preston character is talking about um so <laughs> <laughs> anyway moving on uh, just a little shade for you I know it's, you love it when I do it, oh, I really so. love it um uh the thing about uh this the idea of a state of the nation book is that it does kind of create a fable. It's a fable of now, that's what's interesting about it. And it's hard to avoid archetypes in those kind of books. And I think that's, again, where Olivia Lang is so clever in hers, engaging with Kathy Acker as an archetype, um, and a a bunch of other very zeitgeisty things. So Animal Farm, to me, also, I mean, come on, look around. So many of the world leaders we have right now are fucking pigs, and it's, it's, it's writ large, they're all there. These characters that live again and again and again. And I think the political drama that Animal Farm examines um, is ever relevant so it's a state of the nation novel that basically as long as politics remains in its old form which in the western world seems unlikely to change anytime soon um, Animal Farm will remain a state of the nation novel yeah I'm with you did I argue that yeah no enough? no and I
0: think you're right that it's the state of the nation novel does not need to be a realist realist novel and as our politics gets more and more distorted, maybe we need something that is reaches beyond the realist to the fabulous or the mythological or yeah. the surreal.
1: I mean I've just written oink oink, oink. <laughs> <I just laughs> <quite nice. laughs> But yeah. <laughs> Great. (laughs) What's yours? Um, Can I just tell you
0: a little bit of a story very quickly before I start? Which is, I was at this event over the weekend for aspiring authors, and I had this one-on-one session with one of the authors, and at the very end, he was like, hey, I listened to your radio show. And I was like, oh, yeah. And he was like, it's very funny. And I was like, oh, yeah? And he was like, I don't know if you mean it to be funny, but it's very funny. (laughs) And then he left. <laughs> wow, we are we are funny. Do we try to be? F- I don't oh, know. I don't know, anyway. babe.
1: I have no idea. I'm sure we're fucking hilarious. Okay, <laughs>
0: you you swear a lot when you're tired. Not I that do. I mind. No, okay, but I, anyway,
1: it's lazy expression. Isn't no, it? no, no, I know I'm not saying it's lazy. It's adorable because I was on the BBC usual. recently and I wasn't allowed to swear, so it's all coming out. I'm having some kind of like delayed reaction. <laughs> fuck, 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 fuck. What's <laughs> <Right>. your book? <laughs> Um, Well,
0: as as with you, I'm cheating a little bit, which is that I'm not going to talk about a book. I am going to talk about what I do think is one of the great American state of the nation novels that is actually a play which is Angels in America by Tony I Kushner. I fucking love yeah. that play. Yeah, it's a wonderful play, isn't it? Um, it's a two-part play set in the late 80s in New York in the midst of the AIDS crisis. It, uh, the, the first part premiered in 1991, and The National has just put on a really acclaimed production that moved to Broadway. I, I think saw you saw it. it. And I, I also know.
1: have recommended this on the show before,
0: but keep going. Wait,
1: have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But keep going. It's phenomenal. It deserves oh, all the no. airtime it can get. i I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: Anyway, I was really gutted to miss that production. Well, I'll talk about why I think Angels in America is a State of the Nation novel. Um, it because I think it's, it's part of its ambition is what makes it so pertinent to its time. Um, it's beautiful. It's funny. It's messy. And it's talking about AIDS. It's talking about the gay community. It's talking about Mormonism and the project of America, mm. what America is, what it can be. Um, and all of the bad and good things that come along with this young nation's project of independence and self-rule. And um, I just, it's, it's beautiful. And what I would say is that it's great to read which is not true of all plays. And I've never actually seen a production of it on stage. I've seen the HBO version that came out in like 93 or something like that, which is which is pretty good. But my favorite experience of encountering this play was actually just reading it for the first time. Yeah, it's an incredible title. And so I'd, I'd really recommend it Along with Octavia, Again. who apparently has already recommended it. No,
1: but it's phenomenal and it you're right, it is phenomenal to read. And also what I love about it is it's realist, but it's also completely fabulous, mm-hmm. as in there is this fable element to it yeah. and these other voices that come in. Well, no, there's it's... a literal angel that appears on stage that's notoriously difficult to to actually stage. Yeah. Um and the national did an amazing job. I saw it and it blew me
0: away. Yeah, there's an oral history that's just come out about it that I really would like to read um that called. I think the world's only spins forward or some uh, uh, something like that we'll we'll tweet about it yes um so we'll be back in a minute with our book recommendations
2: Free living upstairs are you coming on downstairs? Or will leave
0: I'm Carrie Plitt, here back with Octavia Bright and also Olivia
1: Lang to give some book recommendations. So, Octavia, do you want to start? I'd love to. Um, I'm going to recommend a phenomenal collection called Hold Everything Dear by the fabulous John Berger. Um, Its subtitle is Dispatches on Survival and Resistance, so I've turned to it in in these times of need. Um, I've been really struggling to sit down and focus and read Lately. Sometimes it happens. I, I struggle to focus my mind and kind of connect. And I think it's been, it's partly to do with feeling stressed about everything that's happening in the world and also my personal life being in flux, all these different things. And I find Berger's voice such solace in those times because he is relentlessly political, he's relentlessly emotional at the same time. And there is never a sense that these things should be separated in his work. Um, and this text is it's just full of like profoundly meaningful, beautiful connected sentiments about basically holy shit and also, don't stop feeling. Don't stop loving each other. Don't stop expressing those things. Um, so it's, it's a very galvanizing book, and and feels frighteningly relevant still, as his writing always does. Um, and I miss him. <laughs> That's it. Mm. But do it. Read it. It will. It will. It will hearten you. Um, and I think it will inspire you, whether you are someone who writes or not, to think about ways to express yourself and to express yourself to the people who mean things to you, um, whether they be artists or people in your personal life. There's this wonderful letter he writes to Juan Muñoz, who is this fabulous Spanish uh, artist who was a friend of his after Muñoz's death and it's just this kind of it just made me think, you know, if you appreciate somebody's work, just fucking tell them. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. tell them. It will mean it will mean the world. It will tra- it will transform both of you mm-hmm. in in the experience. So, John Berger, forever. Oh.
0: What a recommendation! No, I I love John Berger, but I've never read that book, so I think I. Need I'll to lend it. it to you. Yeah. I'd love to. You have to be, be careful with it.
1: it; that belongs to my aunt. Okay.
0: <laughs> oh. Olivia, could we have your recommendation?
2: Yeah, my recommendation is um, This is the Place to Be by Lara Pawson, which yes. is published by CB Editions. Oh, good. I haven't it that isn't read it. yet. That is a wonderful book. This yeah. is a really, really special book. Um, so when I, I was saying earlier that I'm struggling with writing a new book and can't work out the form, and I feel like Lara Pawson is the person who's cracked the form somehow. She's She was a war reporter, and in some ways it's reflections about her time reporting on wars in various African countries um, but it's also about so much more it's about sexuality and gender it's about what violence means it's about what truth is Re- I think really it's meditation on what truth is um, it's very short and it's written in fragments and that's become such a sort of voguish form and I feel like those books can often be just exceptionally lazy like the, th- the thoughts aren't connected with Lara's book it feels like it's the only possible way that she could have written it it's a sort of a shattering that comes together into this, into this new way of thinking. I, I have never read anything like it. I've never read anything that so deserves its form. um, Or that has made me think so deeply. It's, it's articulated things that I have never been able to articulate about how I feel about fear or how I feel about having a body it feels like it gets right into the tendrils of human experience in a way that I find staggering and it really is only the barest amount of pages so I wholeheartedly recommend that
1: that makes me very excited to read it it. yeah I will I will immediately
0: it's a wonderful book and I think we were talking Earlier, maybe before you came about the confidence of Crudo, and I really feel that's something that the that her book shares with yours is yeah is the confidence of her voice. But
2: yeah, she's so brave. She's one of those writers like David Wonorovich where you read and you think, This gives me courage to do more with my work to push my boundaries out, which I always feel like is that's the mark of the books that I most want to sort of press into people's hands. Mm. Carry. Well, I feel my
0: recommendation is gonna be a bit of deflation after this,
2: to be totally honest. Um
0: a bit, Partially because this month I have just been reading manuscripts from my authors, some of which are very good, but I'd feel very weird <laughs> recommending them. Um, but I have just started a book for Book Club, obviously, which I think I'm really going to like. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and recommend it, even though I have just started reading it. So it's called America is Not the Heart by Elaine Castillo. Ooh. Have you heard about this book? No. Yeah, so it's it's a debut Novel, um, and it is about the protagonist. Name is um, oh, I'm gonna mispronounce it. Do Ero it, babe. De Vera, eh? Ero De Vera. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Who arrives in her uncle's house in the Bay Area in America after being disowned by her parents in the Philippines? Um, and it's just, it's, it's incredibly compelling. It's incredibly readable. Um, it's a very searing examination of the immigrant experience in America, oh, which yeah. I think is just so pertinent to our times, um, and so important right now, and also a Filipino voice, which I don't—I certainly haven't read a novel like this. She uses a lot of Tagalog um, words throughout. It's just—it's—it's—it's oh. it's, it's a really engaging, beautiful, and quite critical work about the immigrant experience in America in a way that sort of feels like, especially in the wake of all the stuff that's happening with Juno Diaz. Just like yeah, having more writers um, sort of populating that space feels really, really important right now. So I'm I'm really glad to be reading it and and can't wait to finish it.
1: Awesome. Sounds, yeah, it sounds brilliant.
0: that's all the time we have for today thanks to our interviewee olivia lang whose book crudo i would recommend you all read and buy and talk to us about on twitter we'd love to hear from you also to rory bowens at nts and to eddie
1: knight for editing and music literary friction is available as a podcast to download on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live you can check us out on twitter and instagram you can also get in touch with us via email lipfriction at gmail.com and i'm fucking sorry for all the fucking swearing No, you're not. I'm not. (laughs) Well,
0: we will be back in a month. I'm Carrie fucking Plitt. (laughs) I feel so naughty saying that. With Octavia Bright. And this is Literary Friction.